After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable, No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into the new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say, the old is better. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jason. Sorry for the confusion on the scripture reading. We had planned to just read the part about fasting, and then I thought, actually, we need a little bit more of the story, because it happened in a certain context. So we read a little more. Thanks for doing that, Jason. Uh, My name's Jennifer. For those who don't know me, uh, welcome if you're visiting with us today. I'm one of the associate pastors here. Brian booked this Sunday off to go away quite a while ago. And so today I have the great privilege of preaching from the next portion of our series in the book of Luke. And uh, which just so happens to tackle this question of fasting. And uh, I suspect Brian might have been somewhat relieved to hand this one off. Who knows? (laughs) It's not the easiest topic to preach on. I've never addressed this topic from the pulpit before. And uh, so bear with me. I'm certainly no expert in fasting. Um, So even though I'm going to do my best to explain the background and the meaning of this passage, don't think I have all the answers about this. I don't. I'm just a fellow student of Jesus along with you. And uh, I'm asking a whole lot of questions. So my first question today for us is, what would make you think that someone is a good Christian? And I don't mean in regards to their personal spiritual growth. Uh, I mean the external things that we might notice about somebody. What, would, what were the outward behaviors that you might see in an acquaintance and say, aha, that person is probably a Christian? I think the number one thing would be church attendance, right? If we find out that someone goes to church on Sunday and goes to a lot of church events, then we might be pretty suspicious that they're a Christian. If they don't drink too much or swear or smoke, we might think, well, maybe that's an indication that they're a Christian. 
If they have a daily quiet time set aside to read their Bible and pray, that would definitely be an indication, but we don't usually see that unless it's someone in our own family, right? If they're volunteering a lot, whether at a church or in their community, that might be an indication that they're a Christian. A reputation for being kind and generous. None of these things actually tell you if a person's heart is right with God, but they're things that we might notice and look for if we were wondering if someone was a believer. So now I want you to imagine with me, um, for those of you who are retired, you're going to have to go back a decade or two. Imagine you're invited to a party for a coworker. And you meet some guy there at this party who's a real life-of-the-party sort of guy, a real character, and everybody wants to be around him. He's laughing, and he's telling jokes, and he's just a really fun and charismatic person. And you've heard of this guy, and you know that he doesn't go to church. He's got a beer in his hand while he's telling these jokes. And as far as you know, he doesn't volunteer anywhere, and his reputation actually is kind of questionable. There's a lot of nasty rumors going around about his parents. He's never been to college, never studied. He's been a construction worker all his life. But he's recently started a podcast online. Hopefully most of you know a podcast. It's like an audio um, speech or discussion or interview that you listen to online. So he started a podcast called God is My Father. And it has thousands of subscribers. And people are claiming that this guy has changed their lives. So would you take seriously this guy's opinions about God? Would you respect him as a teacher of spiritual truth? To you, a good solid Bible-believing, church-going Christian. Would you maybe suspect in your heart of hearts he could be a bit of a heretic with what he's teaching online? I've tried to put the situation that Jesus and the Pharisees were in into a modern context for us because this is pretty much the case for the Pharisees when they saw Jesus at Levi's house. Jesus broke every category that they had for what a good Jew should look like and for what a rabbi should do and not do. They had certain outward behaviors that they expected to see in a devout Jew, just like we have certain outward behaviors that might indicate to us that someone is a devout Christian. And Jesus did not meet their expectations. For us, the church attendance is the first thing we look for. For the Pharisees, Keeping the Torah, the Jewish law, that's the first thing they looked for. Being a good rabbi meant that you would keep yourself holy by staying away from anything or anyone unclean. You would tithe meticulously. You would keep the Sabbath. And you would fast twice a week according to the tradition of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. Jesus appeared to flout all these rules. He touched the unclean. We heard of him healing someone with leprosy by touching this man. He ate with sinners, reputable sinners, who were known to be doing ungodly things. He broke the Sabbath, or at least the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath. And he didn't fast twice a week. But he still claimed to have authority to teach them, the good Jews, about God. And understandably, this was really hard for them to accept. It was much harder than for all the sinners who were already breaking all those rules. They thought Jesus was great. So we're in Luke chapter 5, and this is the first time that the Pharisees appear in Luke's gospel. 
And it makes sense that they have some questions for Jesus. If you imagine this context, Jesus is not meeting what they think he should be like. And so at first, Jesus is patient with them, and he answers their questions. But just wait till we get on to chapter 11 in Luke, because Jesus is not going to put up with their hypocrisy forever. He is going to have some very choice words for them about focusing on the externals and ignoring the greed and pride and judgmental attitudes in their own hearts. But for now, he is tolerating the Pharisees' questions, and he's maybe even hoping to teach them something. So if you've got your Bibles, please open them and look with me at the events in Luke chapter 5. They flow together as one story. First, the Pharisees were shocked that Jesus claimed to forgive sins. And so he proved his authority to them by healing the paralytic who was brought to him down through the roof, as Brian told us about a few weeks ago. And then when they asked him why he would make himself unclean by eating with sinners, he explains that he's there to heal the spiritually sick and to call them to repentance, not to avoid them. And then someone at this party of Levi's, we're not sure exactly who, asks him why he doesn't fast like John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Here he is partying and eating and drinking with a whole bunch of crazy people. And then next, they're going to, if you look in chapter 6, they're going to start asking about the Sabbath and why he doesn't observe the Sabbath properly. And Pastor Jason gets to tackle that one next week. But um, Jesus' answer here about fasting actually does a lot to explain his behavior in all these cases. Because his response illustrates how the kingdom of God that he has come to announce can't be contained by their current rules and their current expectations. Today we're looking specifically at verses 33 to 39. And there's two things we need to understand in this passage. First, we need to understand the question they're asking. We need to understand what they were referring to when they said John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast and pray. What was this practice and why were they doing it? And the second thing we need to understand is Jesus' answer, which he gives in a typical Jesus fashion of answering their question with a question and then a parable thrown in for good measure. So let's look at the question that he's asked first. They say to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. So um, it's actually more of an accusation than a question, isn't it? A little bit passive-aggressive. They comment on Jesus' disciples rather than on uh, Jesus himself. And they compare them with other religious disciples rather than... Yeah, they're really nitpicking, we think. But what we have to understand is just how important fasting was to them and how important it was in the Judaism of Jesus' day. Fasting was not practiced uh, as a crash diet (laughs) the way we might do in our culture. A lot of people do intermittent fasting to lose weight. That is not what this is about. This was voluntary abstinence from food for a spiritual purpose. And the Pharisees fasted every Monday and Thursday and devoted themselves to prayer. And this was very highly regarded by all the people as an act of worship. A lack of fasting would mean that you weren't worshiping God, that you lacked respect for God. Just like we might think that a Christian who doesn't go to church on Sunday isn't properly worshiping God. This is how important it was to them. And believe it or not, 
Fasting is actually mentioned in the Bible more often than baptism. Did you know that? That kind of blew me away. Can you just imagine if uh, we were called White Rock Fasting Church instead of White Rock Baptist Church? There's an idea for us if we ever uh, change our name. (laughs) Um, So in the Torah, fasting was commanded, but just on one day a year. It was commanded by God for all the Israelites to fast on the Day of Atonement. And that was the day that the high priest would go into the holiest room of the temple and sprinkle blood on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant and ask forgiveness for the nation's sins. And you can read about this in Leviticus 16 if you want to know more about that. The people were supposed to show their repentance on that day by denying themselves, which meant abstaining from food and water. So that was the only day they were commanded by God to fast. But then after the Jewish exile to Babylon and after their return, they instituted other annual fasts so that they could remind themselves of the consequences of their sin. And then there were many, many instances of spontaneous fasting during a crisis in the Old Testament. So, for example, the people of Nineveh, when Jonah comes and preaches God's judgment upon them, they repent and they fast in mourning and asking God for forgiveness. Nehemiah fasts and mourns and prays when he hears of the destruction of Jerusalem. King Jehoshaphat and Queen Esther, they both proclaim a national fast while they're praying for God's intervention on their behalf. So fasting was a common form of worship for the Jews. It was associated with intense prayer, and it usually accompanied mourning and repentance and asking or petitioning God about a particular need. Prayer and fasting always went together because it wasn't the absence of food that was important so much as that additional time and focus that is freed up to spend with God when you're not preparing and eating meals. That physical hunger is intended as a reminder of our spiritual hunger, our need for God, and our dependence on him even more than on our daily bread. So keeping all of this in mind, it makes sense that John the Baptist's disciples would be people who fast, because they were involved in a ministry of calling people to repentance, to lament and mourn over their sins, and then be baptized publicly to show their intention to change. The Pharisees, according to Jesus, did this mainly because it made them look good. It was the most intense and highly regarded form of worship in their community, and so the Pharisees did it twice a week. It gave them a good reputation and made them look holier than other people. In uh, Matthew 6, 16-18, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he gives some teaching about fasting. And he says, When you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do. That's the Pharisees he's talking about. For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. They've gotten the accolades and the respect that they wanted. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So notice that in that teaching, Jesus says, when you fast, not if. 
He is assuming that his disciples will do this at some point. And it's not a minor issue for him either. This comes right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount after he's teaching about giving to the needy and about prayer. And he mentions that you will be rewarded by God for this practice. And then he goes on and talks about storing up our treasures in heaven rather than on earth, which implies that fasting is one way to do that. And so even though Jesus never commands us outright to fast, he gave guidelines about fasting. He himself fasted when he was tempted by Satan in the desert, as we heard about when we looked at Luke 4. Very interesting to me that Jesus seemed to think that abstaining from food would actually strengthen him to meet temptation rather than weaken him. That's quite different than how we might think. We think we need a good three meals a day to stay strong. But the early church even followed Jesus' example. They fasted and prayed together on many occasions. You can look at Acts chapter 13, where the church at Antioch prays and fasts and commissions Paul and Barnabas to their missions work. And then Paul makes a habit whenever he plants a church to pray and fast before he appoints elders in that church. So all of this is to say that Jesus' response to this question about not fasting has to be properly understood in its context. And in its context, in the biblical story, fasting is a good thing. It is an appropriate and necessary thing at certain times in our lives. It's a form of worship that Jesus taught about and practiced himself and expected that his disciples would practice. And after his ascension, they did. But at this particular time, at this party... They weren't fasting. They were feasting. This is what gets him in trouble. And this is why he has to explain to his accusers. So in verse 34, back in Luke chapter 5 now, at the party at Levi's house, Jesus says to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. So Jesus' point here is not that fasting is bad, it's just that during his earthly ministry, it's not the time for it. It's the time for celebration. The Messiah has come. Jesus, the bridegroom, has come to awaken his church. And so this is a wedding, not a funeral. This is a time for feasting. And the Pharisees have misunderstood the times. And even John the Baptist's disciples are slow to catch on because they don't realize yet who Jesus really is. Jesus is saying there's seasons for fasting, and those are good. And there's seasons for feasting, and those are also good. And while Jesus is with them, physically present to disciple them and mentor them and teach them, this is a time of feasting. Why would they keep on fasting and praying for God's deliverance when he's already given the answer? God sent his son to save them, and so this is a time for rejoicing. This is very similar to the words in Ecclesiastes 3, where it says there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. So when Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God on earth, and that all people are invited to be citizens of that kingdom, this inauguration is going to come with a big bash. There's going to be miracles, and there's going to be healings, and there's going to be lives being changed. And it's not the time for fasting. It's the time to joyfully participate in what Jesus is doing. And then to drive this point home, Jesus tells a parable. A very short one. We didn't study it when we looked at our series on parables last fall. But verses 36 to 39, he says, No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. 
Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. So Jesus is saying here that this new kingdom of God that he is inaugurating on earth is going to require some new practices and some new traditions. A new revelation from God has been given in the person of Jesus Christ. And this old covenant is not going to be able to contain it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. When he dies, he will make obsolete this whole system of sacrifices and priests and ritual cleanliness and written regulations. And we will now have the Holy Spirit who writes his law on our hearts. So trying to keep the old ways and rules would be like putting new wine into an old brittle wineskin made of sheepskin that's already dried out. And when you put the new wine into it and the new wine ferments, it's going to burst open and everything will be ruined. Or it's like patching your old clothing with new unshrunk cloth. As soon as you wash it, it's going to tear apart. It's not going to stand the test of time. But Jesus knows what he's up against when he's teaching this because he does acknowledge that change is hard. Most people are content sticking with what they know. He knows that the Pharisees, for the most part, are not going to want the new wine. They're going to prefer the old, their old ways, and they're going to reject Jesus' new strange ways of freedom. He knows that's just the way that it is. But it's also a a bit of a warning to them not to miss out on what God's doing. So later, the early church is going to have to wrestle with how to worship God appropriately in this new era of the Spirit and decide what practices to keep and what practices to let go. Because Jesus doesn't specifically tell them here. He says the old wineskins are no good and you're going to need new ones. He doesn't explain what that exactly means. And so the early church ends up letting go of a lot of things. They let go of circumcision, they let go of sacrifices, they let go of temple worship, they let go of all their dietary restrictions, and then they add some new things. They add the celebration of the Lord's Supper, they add meeting together on Sundays for corporate worship, and they add preaching the gospel to non-Jews and inviting them into, as full members of the church. But one tradition that they keep from Judaism is fasting and prayer. Because Jesus said that the time for fasting would come again when the bridegroom was taken from them, meaning after Jesus' death and resurrection and before his second coming. That's the time in which we live. So how, then, are we going to apply his teaching about fasting to our lives? I do not have all the answers, but I do have three questions for us to ask ourselves and to ponder. And I would encourage you that if you're taking notes, maybe write these questions down, spend some time thinking about them this week, and I would love to hear your thoughts at some point. I encourage you to come and and talk to me about your thoughts on fasting. So my first question is this. Do we have our seasons mixed up? The way the Pharisees did. It seems that To me, we do a lot of feasting in Canada and in North America. We celebrate pretty much everything with food. 
we celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and graduations and retirements and new jobs and new homes and you name it, we have food. And we fill ourselves up. We go to potlucks and buffets and restaurants, even while we know there are others in the world going without. And so if, if feasting and fasting go together and balance one another with each in its season, then we need to know what season we're in. The Pharisees' mistake in Luke chapter 5 was to insist on fasting when it wasn't appropriate. And maybe, maybe, this is an honest question, I wonder, maybe our mistake is the opposite. We are now in an era of waiting and praying for Christ's return. We're in this tension between the inauguration of the kingdom and its full consummation. And we have a task to do. We've been given the Great Commission. We are to be making disciples and teaching them to obey Jesus. We're supposed to be diligently praying and striving for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that seems to me like it would be a time for fasting. Does that mean we should never celebrate? No, of course not. Jesus gave us a lot of things to celebrate and to rejoice over. But my argument is simply this, that I think we typically over-feast and under-fast. As a whole, we've neglected this practice of prayer and fasting that Jesus taught about. And I don't even know the whole history of our church, White Rock Baptist, but have we ever corporately committed ourselves to a particular time or season of prayer and fasting. It could be maybe in repentance or to ask God for a new work in our community or to seek God's guidance on some particular issue. I don't know if we've ever done that, but if not, why not? What would it take for us to actually do that? So that was my first question. Do we have our seasons mixed up? Question number two is this. What old ways are we stuck in? Are we like the Pharisees, resisting change even when the change is directed by God? Are we hanging on to some of those traditional ideas of what a good Christian should look like and we're missing what God is doing right in front of us? So I know that in its context, Jesus' parable about the clothing and the wineskins was particularly about the fulfillment of Jewish law and the need for his disciples to find new practices in a new era. I know that. But I think we can draw some broader applications from this as well. The good news that we proclaim of salvation in Jesus Christ has to be recontextualized for each new culture and each new generation within that culture. We never change the gospel, but we do change our style and the way that it's presented. Sometimes our old wineskins have to get thrown out, even though they were great and they served their purpose at the time. Some of the new ways that millennial and Generation Z Christians behave might seem blasphemous to some of our older generation. For example, They rarely attend church every single Sunday. A sermon doesn't interest them very much. They're probably sleeping while I'm up here talking. (laughs) Hymn sings and church potlucks and choirs are not going to reach or draw in young adults from our community anymore. So what should our new wineskins look like? I don't know. I need ideas. We need ideas. 
What is going to reach our culture with the gospel? Maybe it should be movies or churches that meet in movie theaters. That's a thing now. It could be social media. It could be contemporary music. It could be camps. It could be travel clubs or something we haven't even thought of yet. Our God is creative. He's given us the freedom to communicate the gospel in various ways to the people of our time and our culture. And so what old ways are we stuck in that we might need to let go of if we want to impact the world? Last question. Question number three. Are we taking seriously the call to follow Jesus? So in Luke 5... 27, the first verse that Jason read for us, Jesus asks Levi to follow him. Maybe it was an invitation to follow him, maybe it was more of a command to follow him, but in any case, Levi got up and left everything behind and followed him. And I think that call to follow Jesus is still being given to us today. How do we do that? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus? At the very least, I think it means that we want to model our lives after his, right? We want to study what he did and what he taught, and we want to ask the Holy Spirit to change us and make us more like Jesus. So if we're serious about following him, about following his example and following his teachings, then we will have to wrestle with the fact that on certain occasions, Jesus fasted, and he assumed that we would fast, And he gave instructions about how to fast. And surprisingly, Jesus actually said nothing about corporate worship on Sundays or about daily devotional times or about not swearing and all the other things that we might look for. But he did specifically teach about fasting, and yet we don't really do it. Our understanding of what makes a good Christian seems to be different than what Jesus expected. Our priorities might be a little bit out of line. And so, why? Why is that? Why do we not fast? Is it because we don't really take very seriously the power and the responsibility of prayer? I've done a lot of apathetic praying in my life. I've done, I've done some serious, intense praying too, but I've done a lot of apathetic praying where I basically say, here is my list, God, here are all the burdens, and here is all the people, and would you please help them if you want to? It's pretty apathetic sometimes. But when you were fasting, it's hard to be apathetic because every rumble of your stomach is going to remind you that you are focused on God and that you are deadly serious about this request that you are bringing before him or this guidance that you need or this temptation that you need his help with. You're so serious that you're not even going to eat that day because you're going to focus on God. So that's not apathetic praying. I don't want us to become legalistic either, because fasting wasn't commanded. Jesus never said, you must do this. And it doesn't gain us any points with God, and it doesn't force God to do what we want either. It's not blackmail. So why would we do it then? We might think we could choose to pray just as passionately without fasting, right? We could. What difference will this lack of food make to my praying? And honestly, I don't know, because I haven't fasted often enough to find out, and I will admit that to you. But if studying for this sermon has taught me anything, it's that I want to find out. 
What power does fasting have? Why did Jesus teach about it? What's it good for? If Jesus did it, and he expected us to do it, then we better at least try it with an open mind. So I want to give you a challenge. If you're physically able, and I know some people are not, but if you are physically able, then I challenge you to devote one day or part of a day to prayer and fasting sometime before the end of 2019. If you've never fasted before, you can start small with one, one meal that you miss, maybe two, and make a plan of what you want to pray about during that time or what scripture you want to study and meditate on. Here's some examples. You might choose to focus some prayer on our summer camps that are coming up this summer. We're going to have all kinds of kids from our community here in our building. And wouldn't it be wonderful if some of us would pray and fast that God would move in their lives and the lives of their families? Or you might want to pray for a friend or a family member who needs Jesus. And maybe you've prayed for them for years, but you've never fasted and prayed. Why not try that? Maybe you need to pray for strength to overcome a particular temptation, something that has tempted you your whole life long, and you just want to be rid of it. Or maybe you need to pray for guidance on a particular de decision that you're facing. These are all good reasons to fast and pray. And I am not an expert. I have never fasted more than a day, except when I did a silly juice cleanse thing, and that was not for spiritual purposes, and I complained the whole time. So I can't guide you very specifically in this, and I know that. But if there is someone in our congregation today who is experienced with fasting and prayer, then I would encourage you to come and talk to me, because some of us need more mature Christians to help us learn these spiritual disciplines. And there may be a group of us that want to learn more about this. So if this is something you have done and are able to teach or help us with, come and see me. I want to close with a true story here about someone that many of you would know. Ruth Andre, our former, our former pastor, Ellis Andre's wife, is a person who practices fasting. And she gave me permission to share this story with you, and I hope that it will encourage you that fasting is a worthwhile and powerful addition to prayer. So the story goes like this. Years ago, Ruth knew a woman who was a new Christian, had given her life to Christ, but was struggling with alcohol addiction. And she was hiding bottles of wine all over her house to keep her husband from knowing how bad it was. And one day Ruth was reading Isaiah 58, and verse 9 convicted her that she needed to fast and pray for this lady. Isaiah 58, 9 says, Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. So Ruth took that seriously, and she called together the women of her church, and she spoke to them about this scripture and asked them to pray with her. And so they spent the day together fasting and praying for this lady. <laughs> And the day ended, and they went home, and they didn't know what difference it had made. But later on, they heard that at 4 p.m. on that day that they were fasting and praying, this lady was driving past a rehab facility for people with addictions, and she decided to park and go in and check herself in. And over time, thanks to her relationship with the Lord and the skilled counselors that helped her through this, she was freed from many years of alcohol addiction. And so there was great rejoicing in the church because of this. I think we can learn something from this story that fasting is not an outdated practice. It is something Christians can do today, even in this day and age, or maybe especially in this day and age. 
And from time to time, the Holy Spirit will prompt us to fast. And so my hope for all of us is that we would be willing and open to that prompting. Willing to try something new, maybe that we've never done before, for the sake of worshiping God and growing in our faith to impact the world. And if that sounds familiar to you, it should, because it's part of our purpose statement here at White Rock Baptist. Let's pray together. Lord, you know how weak we are. We know how weak our prayers sometimes are. And Lord, we desire a greater dependence on you, a greater trust in you, a bigger faith, more powerful times of prayer where we see you deliver people. God, would you prompt us individually in our hearts to know when it might be time to fast and pray. Help us to get our seasons straight. Help us to let go of old ways that may be hindering us. Help us, Lord, to take seriously this call to follow you in every way, even when it's uncomfortable or hard or foreign. Lord, help us to know you better. Only you know, Lord, why you commanded the Israelites to fast on the Day of Atonement and why that became a practice, not only in Christianity, but in so many other religions. People have seen the value of fasting and praying. And so, Lord, teach us. Raise up strong believers who are experienced in this to help the rest of us learn and to draw closer to you. Make us more desperate for you, Lord, that we would be willing even to skip our favorite coffee or our favorite meal to be with you, that that would be so much more important to us. We thank you, Lord, that you do challenge us and you do bring conviction to our hearts, but never with shame or guilt. You encourage us to move forward with you, not to look back, but to see what can be done in the future to become more like you. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness to us. We pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.